Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. We're sort of in between a lot of labor stuff, a lot of off-season business stuff, free agency stuff. It's an interesting time of year as we approach the middle of March and the start of the free agency season. Uh, And we're going to touch on free agency in this podcast, but we're also going to give you dog pounders a really good preview of your new head coach and of your season. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had an extended conversation with Kevin Stefanski, uh, the new coach of the Browns at the recent scouting combine, and you'll hear from Kevin Stefanski and also Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. He covers the business of sports, concentrates mostly on the National Football League and an awful lot happening there. So we'll get to those in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to give you a few thoughts about the free agency period that is about Uh, to take place, just so that you know, okay, there is a period that will begin next Monday. As you're hearing this, it's either March 11 or a little bit later than that. And on March 16, which is Monday, at noon Eastern time, teams can begin to discuss contracts with agents for free agent players And if you remember the last year or two, this is called the legal tampering period. This is when all the big stories break. Uh, Basically, on Monday afternoon, I would say, you know, there will be a good solid 10 or 15 big names who get done 
there won't be any drama when the free agency period actually begins a week from Wednesday, which is uh, March 18. Uh, that will be at 4 p.m. Teams can actually sign veteran free agents starting at 4 p.m. that day. But most of them, most of the big names are already going to uh, have been decided at that point. Um, I thought I would just go over a few names here that everybody is going to be interested in. Number one, obviously, Tom Brady. Uh, I wrote in my column this week that I truly don't know what's going to happen. And I believe that even though I'm sure his agent, Don Yee, this week is beginning to have very serious conversations with the Patriots about whether they're going to want him back and at what number they would have him back. I just get the feeling that Tom Brady has come this far and he's going to want to, at the very least, enter that tampering period just to see what is out there for him. Uh, my gut feeling, absolute gut feeling, is that Tennessee and San Francisco would be the leaders in the clubhouse for Brady if indeed he is uh, going to go somewhere. And I do think the odds are that he will sign somewhere other than New England. Okay, let's talk about Cam Newton. Now, Cam Newton of the Carolina Panthers has one year left on a contract. The Panthers, by trading him, uh, or even by letting him go, could save $19.1 million on this year's salary cap. You know, I've gone back and forth on this one. Uh, when I had uh, uh, Matt Rule, the new coach of the Panthers, on the podcast last week, basically uh, he sounded very open to having Cam Newton back. Uh, but I do think that the Panthers are probably going to be open because they are in a heavy, heavy rebuild now. And I think they're going to be open to thinking about going on without Cam Newton. Uh, we'll find out early next week whether they're serious about that or whether they want to have him back. It's very, very clear that if Cam Newton does come back, he wants a commitment from the Carolina Panthers. And that commitment is not one that I'm, uh, I'm sure that they're going to be willing to give. Let's talk about Matthew Judon, the edge rusher from the Baltimore Ravens. I think you saw a lot of this in recent years, particularly last year. It happened with Frank Clark. It happened with D. Ford. And it's just kind of a coincidence. Both of those guys, edge rushers. Matthew Judon, also an edge rusher. Uh, those guys uh, basically left their teams with sign-and-trade deals. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs signed D. Ford and then traded him to the San Francisco 49ers. Similarly, the uh, Seattle Seahawks signed Frank Clark, traded him to the Kansas City Chiefs. I think that probably is what you're going to see with Matthew Judon of the Baltimore Ravens. I think the Ravens trust their scouting process. Uh, and I think it's most likely, rather than pay Matthew Judon you know, 13 or $15 million a year or, or even more. I think it's more likely that they would look uh, to trade him and get something for him, uh, maybe a second-round draft pick for him if they can. Uh, so we'll see if that happens. Jadavian Clowney is a very interesting case. Played for the Seahawks last year, had some very disruptive games. But as has been the case with Jadavian Clowney in almost his entire career, you never get his peak performance every Sunday. He's a disruptive player often, but certainly not all the time. 
And I think, obviously, the Seattle Seahawks are going to let him hit the market. They have to. Uh, and I got a sense at the scouting combine that there weren't a lot of teams in love with Jadavian Clowney. And we'll see what happens. I know he's been linked to the Giants in some quarters, and the Giants absolutely need uh, a, a pass rush threat. It wouldn't surprise me, but uh, the Giants also have problems with Leonard Williams. Uh, who is also a free agent, not an edge rusher free agent, more of a of a kind of a 3-4 defensive end type of player. And uh, the Giants are still going to need a pass rusher, whether they bring back uh, Leonard Williams or not. Next, let's talk about Byron Jones, the cornerback of the Dallas Cowboys. It's very clear now that, uh, well, pretty clear, that the Cowboys uh, are probably going to let Byron Jones test the market. I do not see him going back to Dallas. I think he is the best young corner on the market this year. Um, and I think there are so many teams that need help in the secondary and that have cap room. Just be very curious, not necessarily that the Indianapolis Colts would sign Byron Jones, but I just think he's a he's going to be a tempting guy uh, for the Indianapolis Colts to consider in free agency. Let's go to the safety, Justin Simmons. Excellent safety for the Denver Broncos. Great little nugget on Justin Simmons. He has played every snap for the Denver Broncos on defense each of the last two years. He has emerged as a star safety in the NFL. Uh, I saw Vic Fangio at the scouting combine, the Denver coach, and he made it very clear that that Justin Simmons is not going to get away. So uh, my gut feeling is uh, he, he will get tagged by the Denver Broncos if they can't reach a contract agreement. Um, that's the way it looks to me with Justin Simmons. One other interesting free agent with the uh, with the Denver Broncos, I think the fact that they have signed AJ, Bo uh, they have traded, uh, excuse me, for AJ Boye, the cornerback from the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now that they have him, I think it's very likely that Chris Harris will have to find a market elsewhere. Harris is getting up there in years; he's 30 years old, but he came off a very good year last year. Can play both the slot and outside. I think he's going to be a very attractive free agent for some team out there. Um, let's talk a little bit about the tight end market. Eric Ebron, Hunter Henry, Austin Hooper, all good, very much above average NFL starters. I think you'll see the New England Patriots exit free agency having signed one of those three players. Speaking of the Patriots, very likely Joe Tooney, their outstanding young guard, is going to go elsewhere. I just don't see the Patriots who let Nate Solder go when the Giants made him the highest paid tackle in football two years ago. Joe Tooney's going to be the highest paid guard in football after this free agent period. Uh, and I'm sure that the Patriots are going to let him seek his fortune elsewhere. I shouldn't say I'm sure. It's likely that they'll let him seek his fortune elsewhere. Uh, the final two very interesting people that I look at right now. One is Yannick Ngakwe, uh, who's a fearsome, big uh, pass rusher for the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, he says he does not want to sign in Jacksonville long term. Uh, I think he is an excellent candidate for a sign and trade deal. 
Uh, I could see the Giants interested. I could see the Jets interested in him as well. I think he's going to go somewhere if Jacksonville feels they can get a good deal for him. And finally, Derrick Henry. You know, this is a very, very interesting player in free agency this year. He's still young, just 25, and he obviously took over the NFL playoffs last January, uh, is a tremendous big running back. And when I look at Derrick Henry, I say, man, if I'm Tom Brady and I could go to the Tennessee Titans and they're talking to me about going, the one thing I'd say if I was Tom Brady is, listen, make sure that Derrick Henry is back. So, look, I, I don't, do I know that said? No. But in Tom Brady's case, Derrick Henry would be his best friend as a quarterback. I think it's going to be very interesting. Pro Football Focus, I respect them so much for how they grade players. They had Derrick Henry rated the 35th free agent, rated free agent in the crop this year. And and look, PFF made their feelings very well known over the years. Don't pay running backs. But I'll tell you, I don't think the Jag, I don't think the Tennessee Titans agree with pro football focus. I think that the Titans are going to do everything they can to make sure that Derrick Henry stays on their team in 2020 and beyond. So let's see what happens now in free agency. I think it's going to be a fun period starting over the weekend and going into Monday. I'll have more information on it in my Football Morning in America column coming on Monday at NBCSports.com. And... I don't know where the trail will lead. As I record this late Tuesday afternoon, March 10, there's so much we don't know about free agency, and that's why I think it's going to be such a fun period uh, this coming week and in the weeks ahead. So let's get to our guests now. We're uh, going to start with Kevin Stefanski, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Uh, We sat down in a meeting room uh, in the uh, uh, in one of the hotels at the scouting combine, and here is my conversation with Kevin Stefanski. Back on the Peter King podcast, so happy to be joined by Kevin Stefanski, the new coach of the Cleveland Browns. So, Kevin, we are here at the scouting combine, and you know, I always the way the NFL churns people up and occasionally spits them out, including many people who have held your current position. So what is it like for you to be introduced as a head coach in the NFL? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously has been a goal of mine. I think all young coaches out there are are ambitious and and want to be a head coach, and and now I'm here. (laughs) And the the fun part is, as, as I've heard said, everybody wants the responsibility, nobody wants the accountability. So... I take it very seriously. It's it's a big job, and uh, I have a lot of confidence in my ability, mostly because of the people that I have around me. I think we assembled a nice coaching staff. I think Andrew Berry and his staff do a great job. So what's it like? I'm figuring it out as I go. I, we have a plan, but uh, I, I do have a lot of confidence because of the people around us. People might listen to you having confidence and basically – you know, everybody who's taken your job, or quite frankly, everybody who takes a job being a head coach in the NFL believes and tries to execute a plan to succeed and to win. 
I don't mean to say, tell me why you're different, but tell me why you're different. <laughs> Great question. You know, I just think I like the challenge of this. Uh, I know there's a thousands of people out there that say, hey, you can't do this or you can't win. And I think for our players and for our organization, we're not going to really talk about what we can't do. We're going to keep our head down and work at it. But I just I love the challenge and I, and I love that that we've uh, got people in our building that are yearning so badly for, for that for that winning culture. I, I think we want it so badly. So uh, how, how are we going to get it done? How am I going to get it done? I just think we're, we're going to keep our head down and put a plan together. And, and you know, everybody has the, has the plan in the step one and step two, and we just got to be ready to adapt and pivot because oftentimes in this business, things come your way that you weren't anticipating, but we just got to be uh, mindful about having the plan, sticking to it. But then I'll give you another quote that, that, that I love is when the map differs from the terrain, you got to go with the terrain. So we have a plan. But we know that as we start working through this thing that we might get off off of it, but we feel strongly about the course we've set so far. You know what I thought was very interesting about your time in Minnesota is that you were, and I say this in a positive way, I consider that you were a malleable coach in this way. Two years ago, when you had Kirk Cousins, you ran an offense uh, that was pretty wide open and pretty, you know, bombs away. Al Davis would have been proud of your offense. And rightfully so. You had two great deep threats. You had a quarterback who could get it downfield. You threw the ball a lot, 600-plus times. And then last year, Mike Zimmer really wants to run a bit of a different offense. He wants to have Dalvin Cook be a centerpiece. You draft another running back who's like Dalvin Cook Jr., uh, I'm try, uh, Alexander Madison. Alexander Madison, yeah. And so, and 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 also, you get in your offensive room at that time. You get a classic, uh, do both well. Gary Kubiak, you know, run pass guy. And last year, you run the ball a lot more. You only pass maybe 450 times. And I want to know: is that an example of of who you are? Or was that just a unique situation last year in Minnesota? Yeah, I think you use the word malleable. I think you have to be that as an offense. So we have a system at the Browns that, that we believe in. And part of that system is who are your players? What do they do best? And I think what we did last year at, at the Vikings uh, with Coach Zim obviously set, setting the vision, bringing Coach Kubiak in and Rick Dennison. I think what, our whole goal there was to do what we do best there at the Minnesota Vikings. So... How does that apply to the Browns? As we put our roster together, we'll, we'll have a system, but you have to be malleable in that system to make sure it fits to your players. And obviously the quarterback uh, factors very much in that uh, conversation. So we'll, as, as we install our system, we'll have a, a strong belief in marrying that run in the past together, just like you mentioned, Gary. But we also have to have the ability to pivot uh, based on who we have. When you interviewed for this job, the Cleveland Browns job in 2019 and you were up for the job and you didn't get the job. Were you angry? No, no, no. I think for me, I've always tried to do whatever job I have right that moment, do it really well. And when that opportunity came to speak to Dee and Jimmy and the Browns, you know, I, I first time I'd ever had that opportunity. So I spent some time with them. Got, they got a feel for me. I got a feel for them, but you know, I'm a big boy. You know, I don't have to 
you're not, everything's not going to work out exactly how you want it to work out. So they made a decision, no problem. But it was a great experience for me. I'd never done it before. So, no, I, angry would definitely not be the word. I was, uh, you know, very humbled to be, to be thought of in that way. Uh, but bottom line is I had a great gig as the offensive coordinator of the Vikings, so I was going to make sure I did that as best as I could. When you think of the job you have now, you don't only have a job running the offense or, you know, trying to fix Baker Mayfield, trying to make this offense hum with all the great weapons that you have. You have sort of the added burden, I would say, of being a little bit of a healer and 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 because this organization has gone through so much you're now going to be the public face of an organization that is lost forever and has had so many hopeful moments none more hopeful than in 2019 where the sky fell in for the first 8 or 10 weeks and so you don't just t- you're not like Joe Judge taking over the New York Giants he's coaching a football team he doesn't have to worry about any of the other stuff you I'm not saying you have to worry about it, but you have to understand your terrain, as you say. And you have a market that feels like it has a collective black-browns cloud over it. How do you deal with that? Well, I I look at our market and I look at our fans in, in Northeast Ohio. I could not be more impressed with our fan base. And what I know, what we're gonna do for them, with them in mind is, we're, we're looking forward. I mean, 2020 is, is all – we got the blinders on. That's all we're thinking about. But as it pertains to me, listen, as the head coach, you wear many hats. And sometimes you're the psychologist and you got players laying on your couch in your office. And sometimes you put the scout hat on and, and it's free agency or the draft. So that's just part of this job. It is an all-encompassing thing. And I, that, that uh, style of leadership that's important for me at least is whether I'm the face of the franchise or not, I want to just, and I mentioned this in my uh, opening press conference, but it's the truth. I just want to be the point guard. I want to bring the ball up. And when you bring the ball up, I mean, you're in charge. You're running the offense. But I got no problem sharing the ball and making sure other people have success. You know, you talk about being a point guard. Not a very good one. But I was going to ask you just about your basketball background because your dad, for those who don't know it, is a longtime NBA executive. And I want to know when you grew up, you know, did you want to be Allen Iverson or did you want to be <laughs> Baker Mayfield? Uh, you know, we played basketball, football growing up, uh, loved both sports. I was, I, and I'm being very honest, I was not very good at either. But uh, the guy I loved growing up was Jason Kidd. And my dad worked with Jason at the New Jersey Nets. They traded for him uh, back there in the early 2000s. And, and you saw the, the franchise turn when they did, went to a couple NBA finals. But he's the guy that... I've always admired as a player just how tough he was, great defender, loved to share the basketball, but when you saw a Jason Kidd-led team take the floor, they were no-nonsense and they were ready to to do anything and everything it took to win. And uh, just having my dad's relationship with Jason, he's somebody that I've just always admired. Have you gotten to meet and talk to Jason Kidd about things like leadership or or whatever you know i haven't uh and that's just because he's kind of busy in in his current job there with the lakers but he is definitely someone i think it's important to uh, reach out to different people in in the sports industry and, and get their take on things and and i've tried to do that both with the alumni maybe of the browns or or people locally in in the city 
it, it's important that I need to broaden my horizon and understand that place. And certainly, uh, Jason's somebody that I would definitely reach out to. Any alums of the Browns have good advice or any, you know, talk to you about your job? Yeah, I would say all of them had, had really good advice. And, and I just felt it's such a storied franchise, and I want our alumni to feel that, that we're in this thing together and, and they're part of this thing. I had a great talk with Jim Brown, which you know gives me chills just thinking about that, that I was speaking to Jim Brown. Uh, Joe Thomas was You know what's great. interesting about Jim Brown? He is, like, ever hopeful. I mean, he he just he thinks the Browns are going to wake up one day and be thirteen and three and beat the Steelers twice decisively. Hey man, you know he just I he, love he, it. He, he he's yeah. he's got that about him. Do you feel that when you talk to him? I feel that from Jim. I feel that from our fan base. Uh, I feel that from everybody I meet in in Cleveland and and how much they want this and and how much they're they're supportive of what what we're doing. So yes, I feel that. But as it pertains to the alumni. I just think, again, what a storied franchise, Paul Brown. And, and you go back and do your research, it's unbelievable. So talk to Bernie Kozar and, and some of the other guys in town. I just think everybody wants this thing so bad, and, and they're yearning for this thing. And then it's our job with Andrew, myself, Paul, as we get all of our guys together, let, let's, let's, put our, let's set this course for this thing so that we can have uh, an impact, so that we can have success and sustain, sustain success as it is. Do you think in part that you're a good fit for this job? Because as somebody described you to me when you got this job, he's a sunny side of the street guy. And he's not going to let the past influence how he determines the future of this team. I'm not sure about which side of the street, you know. I, I know this, Paul, Peter. I'm just we're we're gonna keep our, our we're gonna go in, in one direction down that yeah. street, okay? And not really turn around and worry about what's come behind us. I just think uh, if there's anything about me, what people will get is somebody who's direct, someone that's going to be organized, set the uh, guardrails up for what we want to be, and then make sure that we stay on, on course. But uh, in terms of my personality, listen, I think our players, they'll get a feel from me once they're in the building in April 6th. But I just believe strongly in, in doing it a certain way. And, and I believe that we'll bring in the people that, that understand that. Is Baker Mayfield your guy? Do you believe that you can get him to be a consistent, performing NFL quarterback? Yeah, I believe in Baker Mayfield. Uh, I really do. I think he's a talented player. I think he's one at every level. Uh, there's a reason he went number one overall, and there's a reason – so many people, uh, when he did, said, hey, he was my number one quarterback. You know, they came out of the woodwork. Uh, the kid's talented, and it's my job and our job as coaches to, to get the most out of him. And that's going to be both schematically, uh, in the meeting room, off the field, all those things. That, that job of the quarterback is not easy, and I've been around some good ones. And I think it's just so important that we put a structure around him that gives – him the best chance we want the best version of baker mayfield and that's very much a part of what i'm here to do and our coaching staff is here to do when i look at baker mayfield and i'm gonna be i'll be a little bit off on my numbers here he got drafted i think 22 months ago and since then he's had so many voices in his ear you know he's had three head coaches uh he's had three or four coordinators and I wonder if I'm him right now 
all I, I would think all he wants is stability. All he wants is a way out of the constant change, the, the churning of it. What do you think when you f- finally get to meet with him and finally get to work your offense with him, what's your message going to be to him about that? Well, I think change in the NFL happens every year with players. I mean, you're always going to have new receivers, new tight ends, new every position somebody's walking in the door that you haven't worked with before. So that's the inevitable part of 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 the change in the NFL. Now, systematically, hopefully we're doing this for a long time together, obviously. But I think for us, the teaching progression is very important to me. So when we're, when we're putting our offense, our defense, our special teams in this offseason, I believe in crawl, walk, run. And we're going to be methodical about it. And we're not going to skip any steps. And, the, you know, the real-life examples of that is would be when we go out to practice – we're not trying to beat the defense in practice. We're trying to install an offense, for instance. And the defense is trying to install a, a front. They're not really worried about necessarily does it match up versus that run scheme. So we're going to be slow as we build it in April and May because once training camp rolls around, you're ready to go. But if you haven't built that foundation and then if you haven't reinforced that foundation, I think you can get out too much and have too much offense or too much defense in. We're not going to do that. So part of the message to Baker is we're going to put him in a scheme. We're going to make sure he's comfortable with it, but we're going to take our time and making sure we have the intricacies of each one of these things we're doing. I, I read Pro Football Focus a lot, and I look at their discussion uh, of Baker Mayfield last year. And one of the things that they said that I thought was really interesting, and look, I'm not a big tape watcher necessarily, but they really found fault with not necessarily him, but on a lot of routes that looked like they were not run in a very disciplined fashion. And I think that is one of the things, that's what I hear from quarterbacks sometimes. You know, Tom Brady wants Julian Edelman to run a 13-yard out at precisely 13 yards. And if you don't run it at precisely 13 yards, he turns around and the ball is over his head or on the ground. And so that, when I look at part of your job, it's going to be to reinforce exactitude or whatever the word I'm trying to say is. You you used it. You said precisely. The, The pass game is built on precision. And when you talk about timing, and if the quarterback's going to go five and a hitch, you have to get to 12 or whatever the route calls for because it's so hard to pass this ball against these defenses. The pass rush is coming. The, the zone droppers are dropping. You have to be working in concert with each other. And that's something that we will preach every day in the offensive meeting room, particularly when it comes to the pass game because if you don't have that precision, it's just too hard. I want to end with this. Who are the coaches in your life who you think have been very influential to you? Maybe not just in the NFL, but going back in your life, who's been really influential to you and what do you take from them into the biggest job of your life? Honestly, all of them. I mean, I could take you back to my third grade 75-pound team coach if you want or my grade school coach, my high school coach, Gil Brooks, was a legend there at, in Philadelphia. Uh, at Penn, I had Al Bagnoli, who a, is a great uh, coach in the Ivy League. He's now up at Columbia. Uh, but then Ray Priori, who's now the coach at Penn, was my defensive coordinator, my position coach. I've tried to learn from every single guy that I've been able to, to be uh, sitting in front of. Give me an idea. Okay, yeah. let's take Al Bagnoli. Yeah. 
give me an Al Bagnoli story or, or yeah. something that you that you really learned from him. Coach Bagnoli was so organized and he was great at he would delegate to his assistants and he had that thing it was like a a, a symphony running he, he would let his guys work and he would make sure that that was the, across the, the board it was making music because it was working together and I just thought the way he uh, was out there at practice and making sure everybody was working in, in the same with with the same goal in mind was just in, incredible just the, the organizational skills of coach Bagnoli were outstanding Kevin Stefanski, I can't let this conversation end without asking you the question that all of America wants to know. Uh-oh. Have you gotten your children a dog yet? <laughs> Good question. Uh, not yet. We're, we're definitely talking about it. Uh, the kids have their own. But anyway, t- tell, tell the story, right? Tell the story yeah, that so, you told at the press conference. Yep, and this is the truth. We broke the news to the kids that, that I had gotten this job. And I knew it was going to be tough because I have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old. My 5-year-old daughter maybe was not as sure what was going on. but And they, they all love moving, don't they? Oh, man. <laughs> well, you know, when you live in one place for so long like we yeah. did, they were attached. So when we told them they were moving, there was lots of tears. So my wife and I immediately went into negotiation mode. So I think I think the first offer was dog, and that was accepted. And then the second offer, just to sweeten the deal, was Disney World trip, and that was also accepted. So we'll be heading down there in March. But uh, have not wor- have not gotten the working on a house first. Get the house, then the dog's coming. Uh, I, I'm smart enough to stay out of that, though. I'm, I'll let my wife uh, work work that with the kids. I really think it would be good to get like an heir to swagger <laughs> you know to have it to have to have a browns yeah. mascot dog in your house sounds good to me uh, <laughs> I, I i got no problem with that well i'll just bring my dog to work on sundays and let him run out of out of the tunnel yeah i like that hey kevin stefanski thanks so much for taking the time good luck i i i say this a lot about teams like in my job i cover 32 teams i root for no teams however I would like the Cleveland Browns because I went to school in Ohio. I went to Ohio University. Half the people who I know from college just they cry when the Browns lose, even to this day. And at one point, I want the Cleveland Browns to win and win big. And I hope you're the guy. Well, so do I. I appreciate that, Peter. And now my conversation with so much swirling right now on the labor front and the business front around the NFL. My conversation with Dan Kaplan of The Athletic. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. An Olympics unlike any other. The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. Back in the podcast, really happy to be joined by the Athletics' Daniel Kaplan 
Uh, Dan covers the business of sports with a uh, with an emphasis on football. And we're having Dan on this week because there's a lot going on with the business of football. As we speak, the players of the National Football League are voting uh, on a collective bargaining agreement proposal that the players and management uh, have agreed on. Uh, that voting is open until Saturday uh, of this week. And also, uh, there's broken out a little uh, little skirmish inside the union where one of the former members of the NFLPA's executive committee, Russell Okung, uh, has filed an unfair labor, labor practice charge against the NFLPA. Um, and also on Tuesday of this week, J.C. Treader of the Cleveland Browns was elected the new president of the NFLPA after uh, former offensive lineman Eric Winston served a six-year term in that job. Uh, he couldn't run again for it because obviously he's no longer an active player. Treader is the starting center for the Cleveland Browns. So there's a lot to do this week, Dan, and let's get right to it. First of all, thanks a lot for joining me. Of course, I'm a, I'm a Peter King podcast virgin, so I'm honored. <laughs> well, this will be fun. Um, so, Dan, uh, probably in inverse order, let's talk about Treader for a moment. Uh, J.C. Treader is an unknown quantity to most people who follow the NFL. Russell Okung, at least, was a you know a, he was one of the uh, previous candidates for the job. And everybody kind of knows who he is. But J.C. Treader, an unknown quantity for this job. He's a 29-year-old center. Uh, he's, a, he's a New York kid. He went to Cornell. Uh, a very bright guy from, those who know, from what those who, who know him say. Um, how did you see the election of Treader? He seems like a little bit more of... Uh, uh, sort of, uh, he reminds me a little bit, uh, if I would talk about him in political terms, he's a little bit more like Joe Biden than Bernie Sanders, at least You're to stealing me. You're my lead from my view? You're stealing my uh, lead from my story tomorrow. I'm, I'm hoping Joe Biden oh, wins I love Michigan that. So, I love so I can lead off my story by saying a moderate won a gigantic election yesterday. Um, yeah, Treader ran against uh, two candidates, Sam Ocho, uh, who was seen as the very pro-CBA candidate, and he ran against Michael Thomas, who Russell Okung pulled out last minute and threw his weight behind Michael Thomas, who uh, was anti-CBA, anti-CBA the on the table. So Treader comes down the middle. We're not really quite sure if he's pro or con CBA, but he, he he's committed to seeing it through if it passes or if it doesn't pass. He's not advocating one way or the other. It looked as though that J.C. Treader had some real problems, though, when he uh, when he posted uh, some comments on the CBA, I think five or six days mm -hmm. ago. Um, how, how do you whatever role that plays? And, and again, we're in the just the early hours of, you know, of trying to analyze this. What kind of president do you think uh, Treader will be? And will it play much of a role in whether the CBA uh, passes or fails this week? Well, if he came out, if Treader came out and 
voiced either support or opposition to the CBA, perhaps that could play a role in the last bit of voting that will will happen through Saturday. Uh, but uh, absent that, if the CBA passes, uh, his role as president is, as, as, as far as the NFL is concerned, is fairly limited because there's, then there's 10 to 11 years of labor peace. The, the player president uh, only becomes very impactful, at least as far as the teams are concerned, when there's a CBA up for negotiation. And if the CBA passes, then Treader, as, as great as he may or may not be, uh, doesn't play an outsized, outsized role for the NFL. But the one thing that president does, and the reason why I thought this was a significant vote, is that, and I'm not sure you can say it's a repudiation of Russell Okung, rather than uh, just that the the players, uh, you know, on the executive committee and the uh, board of directors, the actual the actual player reps don't really seem like they want to throw D Smith out of office. They don't, it doesn't seem they want to have a revolution uh, for the NFLPA, which might have been the case if Russell Okung or, uh, you know, somebody he supported would have uh, won the job. Oh, I absolutely agree. In terms of the internal union politics, absent what it means for the NFL and its teams, uh, this has to be, Good news for D. Smith and his his leadership group there. Uh, I, I absolutely believe if Russell Okung or, or his or his in the end candidate Michael Thomas had won, that would have spelled the end of the D. Smith era in Washington at the NFLPA. And uh, again, given if the CBA passes, there'll be labor peace for the next decade. Uh, there'll be skirmishes, but this is the most important thing the league wants. How does D. Smith come out of this now, Dan, this annual meeting of players and, and player reps in the executive committee in Miami? Do you think he comes out of this emboldened, stronger, whether this passes or not, uh, with a vote of confidence? Well, it, it all depends on what happens with the CBA. If the CBA passes, you know, say it goes past 70 to 30 percent or 80 to 20 percent. Then we'll see that a lot of the opposition were just loud voices. They didn't speak for everyone. But if the CBA were to be close or actually to be voted down, I, I don't see how D. Smith would survive that kind of vote. That would essentially be a vote of no confidence, irrespective of what happened with the president election today. You know, I, I also see something involved in this that I thought was really interesting, and that is that, you know, it seemed like the player reps went to Miami for this annual meeting as a as a pretty unhappy group, um, and and I don't know why because we still do not know a lot about what took place at the meeting, but it seems like the players, you know, who run this union. Uh, seem to be, if not happy with the status quo, uh, they think that things with their union are going okay. And I, I don't know what sort of sense you got going forward, what these players think of their union, but what's your sense? Well, I mean, let's start with D. Smith. He came in in 2009 
after the death of Gene Upshaw, and he was an unknown. He came from outside of union politics, and he he was at that point he was the Russell O'Kung of his of his time. He he threw haymakers. He had a lot of rhetoric. He took the he took the uh, the players into the into the abyss with uh, into the lockout. He had a legal strategy, and then it all came crumbling down when he lost when he lost the legal strategy, and the players wouldn't hold together, and the four and a half month lockout ended in. And the CBA that ruled for 10 years came, came through. And that CBA is largely seen as a, an owner victory. He saw the strength of the owners then. He saw how much power they had. He saw that they wouldn't back down. And that influenced his, his strategy this time. He got as much as he could. And this is the pro-D, the pro-CBA perspective. Um, there are those who said he was fearful, he shouldn't buy into the tactics of the ownership. But in his defense, he saw what happened 10 years ago. And those who say the, the, they should reject the CBA and they'll get a better CBA down the road, uh, they obviously didn't live through what D went through. So um, I, 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 I'm not going to say one way or the other whether I you know, support his strategy, but I certainly fully understand it. You know, I also... Uh, when I look at this CBA and I've written about this, you know, I've I'm befuddled a bit that um, that this is you know I've covered the NFL since 1984, um, and there is a perennial every time there's a uh, uh, every time there is a negotiation between the players and the owners for a new labor agreement. The old timers, the people who uh, uh, on whose backs uh, the the current players, you know, are making a lot of money. The old timers always really complain that the new era of players do not really care about them. And in this particular case, I would say at least thirty or forty percent of what was accomplished in this labor agreement uh, is dedicated to former players. Uh, there's $300 million in, uh, in new pension money uh, and in other benefits for long since retired players. And I don't hear anybody at the union crowing about that. I don't hear any of the members of the executive committee or the board talking about it. Uh, and, and the fact is that a player you know, who played, let's say, six or seven years in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, who currently has a pension that maxes out at 30000 a year, uh, is now going to have that pension go up to 46000 if this is passed. And that, to me, is something that has been missed. It's an opportunity missed, at least in my opinion, uh, in trying to sell this CBA uh, and and I, I don't know how you feel about it, whether you've looked at it, whether you've analyzed all the factors of it. What's your sense on that particular part of this and why the union has not really made much of an emphasis on it? Well, I, I, I agree, Peter. I, wrote, I actually wrote a story last year on um, Lisa Marie Riggins's, uh group, which she's, she's John Riggins's wife, and she's been advocating for pension reform. So she must be very pleased with the outcome, assuming it passes on Saturday. But clearly the people opposed to this CBA are opposed because of the 17th game and they believe they're not getting uh, enough money. Uh, the, the, the union leadership would prefer that this fight take place in private. And at the Super Bowl annual press conference, 
Dee wouldn't talk about it at all. It broke, it broke out in the open shortly afterwards. Uh, they could advocate for particular line items in the CBA that are that that make it look better, such as the pension. But then the other side could be just as easily point out other issues, such as the 17th game, the share of revenues, which did not go up greatly, the extra playoff games, which are not getting compensated at, at a higher rate than perhaps they should, cuts to dis- long-term disability. There, there are a lot of things not to like about the CBA. The question becomes, especially in the environment we're in with the with the gyrating stock market and coronavirus and uncertainty, could the players down the road get a better CBA than they're getting right now? Um, I it, That's a big risk to take to say no to that. Yeah, I would agree. Do you have much of a gut feeling, Dan, when the vote uh, finally gets tallied this weekend, which way it's going to go? Well, 65% of NFL players make the minimum, and they're going to get a $100,000 increase in increases as as the years go by um i talked to a player rep last a couple weeks ago nick sunberg uh he he, and he told me they initially they came in they wanted minimum salaries to go to double to a million dollars and they will get that over the course of this 10 years but it's not as if they didn't try for it those people who are criticizing the cba act as if the union didn't ask. The union did ask for more money. They did ask for higher minimum salaries. It's, you know, the owners, the owners are a tough crew. And it, we all know that NFL players have a, lo- have a small average career length, two, two and a half, three years. It's hard to keep them together. They don't want to miss games. And, the, and the, every, every time this comes up, these CBA negotiations, the owners use that. That's leverage. The only leverage most unions have in sports is the ability to sit out games and the NFL Players Association doesn't seem to have that. See, that's the one thing when people, you know, my I've gotten 50 letters to my column just this week from people saying, in essence, uh, you know, the NFLPA is so weak. Uh, they need to do this, this, and this. And I'm going to answer one of them. I mean, I could answer 20 of them, but I'm going to answer one of them next Monday. And I'm going to say... Basically, no, no crap, Sherlock. But in order to do that, you have to have a membership that the executive director and the president believe strongly would go on strike and would withhold their services if they reach a point in the negotiations where it just simply isn't good enough. And D. Smith does not have that in his union. He knows that he can only go to a certain point. Maybe he could have gone farther than he did in these negotiations. But if this gets turned down, I have a feeling that that especially if the economy continues to go on this bizarre tightrope that it's on, and if the coronavirus is really bad, I, I don't think that this $700 million that is in this year alone uh, for the players, I just I don't see how they're going to make that money back. You know, a lot of people who are against the CBA have scoffed at the notion that the owners want labor peace so they can go negotiate broadcast contracts. And the broadcast contracts go out of several more years. Just one example, CBS, which is obviously we know broadcast uh, Sunday afternoons uh, games. 
the market value of their merged company, Viacom and CBS, has fallen in half since the merger took place. I believe it was November of 2019. It was $30 billion then, it's $15 billion now, and still fallen. There are a lot of concerns at NFL headquarters about CBS. And if you pull CBS out of the equation as a realistic bidder, and I'm not saying you do, but if you pull them out, the, the whole paradigm that you're going to have 50 to 100% increases in, in rates uh, and rights fees for the NFL, that could come tumbling down. So the NFL wants to start negotiating now. If this CBA gets turned down by on Saturday, uh, that's a problem. Uh, they may be able to go to the broadcasters, but without labor peace, it's going to be it's definitely going to be a less of a pool of money for, to divide between the players and owners. You know, in our remaining couple of minutes, let's let's just touch on um, the Russell Okung. Uh, unfair labor practice charge against the NFLPA. So Russell Okung is a is an NFL tackle, has uh, played for nine years. He's just been traded from the Chargers to the Panthers, uh, and he charged in essence that uh, that the NFLPA uh, used illegal methods to obstruct debate on the proposed CBA. That's the main point of his charge. This will be investigated, uh, probably take at the very minimum several months, may take longer than that. The National Labor Relations Board uh, is going to, uh, is going to investigate this claim. And Dan, from what you know of this, do you think Okung's uh, claim has any merit? Well, it's very hard to know. Obviously the NFLPA came out with a statement, uh, saying they, you know, denying these, these charges. And one macro point to make is the NFL, uh, the NLRB is understaffed uh, under the current administration. And there's, there's a five member board and there's board members missing. So I don't know what that means in terms of this particular charge or any charge, but uh, it is interesting that this dirty laundry uh, of the NFLPA is now way out in the open. And, uh, I will point out you you introduced Russell Okung in the beginning as a former executive committee member. Uh, that is that happened today. He was not reelected to the executive right. committee. Uh, so you read into that what you may. Um, he was an executive committee member. He was running for player president. He several days ago he filed the NLRB claim. Uh, he gave up his player presidency bid, and now he's not on the executive committee. So uh, my guess is that. You know, if you file an NLRB claim against your own union, it's not going to be received very well. Right. I, I found it. I found it really interesting. Michael McCann, writing for Sports Illustrated, uh, wrote a fairly lengthy summary of Okung's charges and what may happen going forward. Uh, and let me just read a couple of sentences from his story. Okung faces challenging odds. Last year, there were 18,552 unfair labor practice charges. Mm. Of those, only 916 led to the issuance of complaints. So basically what that means, essentially, is about 5% of all the unfair labor practice charges were found to have merit. Uh, and were found to, uh, uh, you know, by the National Labor Relations Board, you know, to 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 side with the complainant. So again, I don't know. None of us know right now the exact nature 
of whether there's going to be any any there there. But when I read that, I scratched my head and I said, this is either A, going to take a while. I mean, it, it, it may be both, but it's either going to take a while or it's going to be very difficult to prove a case in, a, in an instance like this, obviously, because the charges are uh, the charges are serious, bordering on grave. Yeah, I mean, he, he claims D. Smith and, and an attorney for the outside counsel, Winston and Strawn, try to strong arm him into you know into stopping his opposition to the CBA talks uh, the way they were going. I will say this from the outside, the executive committee that he sits on voted 7 to 4 against the CBA. So I, you know, if the if the union was trying to squelch opposition to it, uh, they didn't do a very good job. Dan Kaplan, really really appreciate you taking all the time. Um there's so much about this. I always wonder and I'm I, I'll just <laughs> I'll ask this this last question. I always wonder how much people really care. Is it strictly an inside baseball thing where only people inside football really care? Because honestly, all the fans care about is, hey, are they playing this year or not? And whether or not this is this is this is ratified, uh players are under contract to play this year. So how much do people do you think? really care about this stuff? I don't think people care that much, at least at this stage. If we got into the, into a lockout or uh, the, the next season and after the season there was no CBA and then we started to approach a, a, a season without games, I think people would care a lot. But, you know, right now it's just a, a lot of claims going back and forth. But it's meaningless in the sense that whether the CBA passes Saturday night or doesn't pass, there's a whole season of games coming up. So, and then you see, you're talking 18, 19 months before potentially missed games. So I think a lot of this is uh, inside baseball. It's fascinating inside baseball. And some people are very, want to know about inside baseball, but I, I don't think the casual fan uh, is really tuned into this. Yeah, I would agree. Hey, Dan, thanks so much. See you down the road. See you down the road, Peter. My thanks to Kevin Stefanski, Dan Kaplan, um, and just make sure that in the coming days, there's going to be a lot of content uh, from Mike Florio, Chris Sims, and from me coming on all of the free agency news that you're going to want to follow around the NFL. Go to profootballtalk.com. Go to Chris Sims Unbutton Podcasts, uh, more than one. And then go to my column next Monday, and you'll be able to follow everything about what happens in the NFL on the free agency front. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back next week with a primer on where everybody is going and what all the teams are doing in free agency.